Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So we're going to try something a little different here. I think we've done this one other time, but instead of picking one topic and bashing it to death for two hours, we're going to try and do multiple topics. So Adam and I sent out tweets asking for listener questions and we got a bunch. So we're going to do what we do a little mailbag episode here. Yeah, we'll be the Dave Ramsey of golf. Is that what Dave Ramsey does? Yeah, it just gets listener questions and that's what his entire show is. That's the whole show, people asking money questions. I don't listen yeah. to it, obviously. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to do that. We're going to do that golf show now. Maybe we, we should do like a live show at one point. That probably Yeah, get, call, get callers in maybe, do live. Yeah, there, there is technology to facilitate that, but we, we haven't done it yet as this is such a low-tech podcast. Do it through Morse code. <laughs> you and me decided we're going to go back and forth on the questions we liked. Thanks everyone for their questions. We probably have more than we could deal with, way more than we could deal with. So we'll, we'll probably go back to this a few times. Should probably say for people to follow us on, on Twitter as well. Yeah, so yes. Your handle, John? At Practical Golf. And mine is actually, <laughs> I'll have to check mine, at Adam Young Golf. I'll tell you, it's Adam Young Golf. Adam is it Young my Golf. Instagram, my Instagram has a dot in there somewhere that sometimes throws me off, but yeah. If you do want to follow me on Instagram, it's at practical.golf. I started posting oh. some, I'm doing short form videos now. I finally started showing my face on the internet. How about that? There we are. We've got consistency then because mine's at Adam Young dot golf as well, so... We got some consistency between the names. So you're showing your face now. I'm showing my face. I don't know why yeah. I've always been. It's just like strange to be out there, but I don't know. I figured people. I resisted it. Yeah, they, they hear me. They read me. Now they can see me, I guess. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. I wanted to be an enigma, so I, I didn't show my face for years. <laughs> but I show my face and feel like, oh, that I don't want, to, <laughs> I don't want information <laughs> from him. <laughs> I no did thanks. have one. Yeah. When I released my book, I did have a, a lot of people who read it and then come for lessons with me. And they turn up and they say, uh, can I speak to Adam Young? I've got a lesson with him. <laughs> I'm like, hey, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. They're like, what? You're Adam Young? I thought you were going to be like a 60-year-old 60 60-year-old 60 guy, not a fresh-faced, I think it was 30 years old when I released the book, but I'm close to 40 now. Yeah. I've gotten... I thought you'd be taller and I thought you'd be older is the two yeah. things I've gotten in person. <laughs> For the record, we're both, well, I'm going to be, actually, I might be 40 by the time this episode airs. We'll see. I'm about to turn 40 and- we're Both 40 and short. <laughs> yes. We're both modest men, as they say. <laughs> There's your banter, people. Let's get into it. Do you want to start off with a question? So the first one I had from a good friend of mine, actually, Michael Riley at Golf spy mpr he said what's the biggest thing that you've changed your mind on since you began publicly giving golf instruction i only had to think about this one this morning and i will probably come up with other ideas if i were to have a deeper think about it so it, it's hard to go back and say you know how you used to think versus how you think now you always think that the, the way you think now is the way you've always thought about things but I would say if you're talking about publicly giving instruction, so the blog, the book, you know, really being out there to the masses, actually not a lot has changed about my philosophy. 
I'm always learning. I'm always experimenting. I keep up with the latest stuff, you know, the forces and torques information, all the kinematic stuff that comes out, all the motor learning stuff that comes out. I'm always trying to keep my education going on that. But when something new comes along, like say, for example, you know, a big thing was over the last few years has been like shallowing and ground forces and things like that. Those are the kind of in vogue. Is that in the word? Sure. You can use yeah, in vogue. In thing. <laughs> I was like on vogue then, but in vogue things. So I'm always kind of experimenting with them, but I go through a process, you know, first of all, I try and understand it fully, this new bit of information. Once I feel I understand it, usually I'll connect with an expert in that field. So it might be someone like Sasha McKenzie or someone like that, so that I get a deeper understanding of it and almost see that is, is what I understand correct? Is that lining up with what you're telling me? Then once that's the case, I start experimenting with these things myself. I start testing them in my own swing, my own game. Then I'll even, I've got a group of instructors who are really close friends and we start to discuss it together. They start to test it. And then, you know, we've got social media now and we as golf pros, so interconnected that this is great for golf instruction because we're not, it's not like before where we had to just test something out on new people straight away, on people straight away. We can actually go and discuss this with, I can go and discuss this with thousands of instructors if I want to. And so get their experiences as well. So you're really drawing from thousands of experiences to see if this works. And I do all of that before I'd ever in input something new into a pupil. And then I would start slow, you know, I would start inputting things into a pupil and see if it's having success, see if I can moderate it a little bit. So anyway, you know, I, I always try not to close doors on information as well. I don't know, John, if, if you saw that recent thread on internal versus external focuses. I saw it, but when I see academic papers, my mind goes kind of like, Bleh. no, no disrespect to the academics. I have family members who are academics. I don't, <laughs> I don't read academic. It doesn't like, it's just a different style of writing. And every time I try and read some academic journal, I, I have a hard time understanding it to be quite honest. So I looked at it and I saw some people's interpretations for being like, well, this headline might've been a little misleading, but I'm not sure to be honest with you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for 15 years or 20 years or whatever, Gabrielle Wolf in the motor learning science, she's promoted the external focuses, you know, thinking outside of your body is the way to go. Almost every research paper that she's done or, or looked at has found that external focuses are better for things like learning, performance, transference to the actual game scenario. And I haven't read this, this new paper or this new information yet, but it's, they showed that there's no effect or very little effect, not nothing to write home about effectively. Luckily, I never closed the door on internal focuses. I've even written blog post articles about how internal or thinking about body movements can sometimes be effective. Although personally, as an instructor, I always find more benefit in the external approaches, but you know, I don't want to close that door off. So I would say it's similar to blocked and random as well. There's always arguments over which is best, even technique versus skill. You know, I promote skill really hard, but I'm still okay with technical work. I just feel that people can get more out of skill, and I think that it's an area that's not promoted enough 
Like the average golfer, if you walk down the range and ask a certain amount of golfers what they're working on, I bet it would be something internal and technical. They wouldn't be saying, oh, I'm spraying the face and trying to hit a little out of the toe, trying to hit a little out of the heel, trying to hit a little higher, lower on the face. They're not working on those things. They're probably working on right arm position in the backswing. So, you know, I think that all of these approaches have merit internal. Sometimes it's good for you to do internal. If you're about to injure yourself with your swing, you might need to work on some body movements that stop that. There's merits to all of these approaches. I would say don't close doors off, but in my own instruction, I just go through these phases where certain things might be a little bit more important, or I start exploring things a little bit more. Like when, for example, the shallowing stuff came out. I'm like, okay, so my mind starts working on that. I start exploring that a little bit more. But eventually, I always come back to the same stuff. And it's the same stuff we talk about on this podcast. It's skill work and it's ground contact, face contact, face direction. I always seem to come back to those things. And there's a saying that if you're still doing the same stuff as you were 10 years ago, you're not improving. And I don't agree with that. I think if something works, it's timeless. It should be timeless. And I think the stuff that we talk about pretty much is times. I, I'm pretty confident that in 20 years' time, if people dig up an iPhone and they find our podcast and they start listening to it, it will still be relevant. Honestly, I, I really do. So, yeah, that's a really long-winded way, as usual. Me. I'm, I'm <laughs> We're going to get through three questions on this. <laughs> I totally lied to everyone. We're going to go through one one question for this entire episode. <laughs> I'm going to shut up for the te- for, for 10 minutes for you. Yeah, I've got 10 minutes in me. Ding. Yeah, basically, I keep coming back to the same stuff. The results of the players basically guide me. It's like coaching is a constant a b test right you you test something see if it works you test something see if it works you're looking at long term as well you're looking at short term and i tell you the stuff that we talk about the results of the players always steers me towards it you know even technical stuff that works people come back to me and they say well i had good success in the technique drills but this skill stuff is just so powerful the really the people who really delve into the skill stuff it's it, it becomes their everything honestly okay out all right he's dropping the mic i guess that question wasn't directed at me because i don't instruct but i'll just say quickly the two things i have changed my mind on since i started practical golf in 2015 was and i'll admit to this i got a lot of i came out with oh short games everything you got to do that that and that and i was i i got the you know once i came across brody's research like i just realized like i got this wrong I didn't understand like the value of distance properly and and the tee shot stuff. And I also got club fitting wrong too. I was very like, I had a kind of chip on my shoulder about that when I came out. And then when I finally met Woody, who's been on the show a million times from Pete's golf and I learned and kind of apprenticed from him, I realized, oh, this does make a difference because it's, it's satisfying physics stuff at impact and it's meaningful. So yeah, I would say the two things I've definitely changed my mind on were kind of the strategy stroke skiing type stuff. I was resistant to that in the beginning and club fitting and there's other stuff too, but like you, I try and remain an open book, but there's just certain stuff I believe in. And I think what we try and do here is get people to do the things that they're not doing. And as you said, yeah, technique is an internal is talked about a lot. So we're going to talk about the other stuff. So yeah, I try and remain an open book, but there's a core philosophy there that probably will not change. 
And then I just try and encourage other golfers do what gets you the best results. Okay, moving on. So I initially wanted to make this an episode, but you said we couldn't make it an episode. So let's see. The question that I have gotten a lot is, hey, John, I'm playing this match play event or some form of this. I'm playing an important match. I'm playing a match play event, whatever. What should I do differently? Like that's always the question. What should I do differently? And I think with match play, and I'm not a match play expert. I've played a lot of it. I've gotten better. I won my club championship last year. That was match play. Hopefully I'll get into the US mid-end match play one day. We'll see. But I think the mistake most people make when they enter match play versus stroke play is they think they need to, this is the main point I'm going to make, is that you need to react to your opponent or do something different. And I think that's a mistake, generically speaking. I'll give a few examples. So tee shots, let's say your opponent hits a bad tee shot and you're like, oh, great. Now I can hit this club off the tee. Or let's say they hit a really good tee shot and you're like, oh, I've got to now match them. And if that's making you choose different clubs and targets, I don't like that. I think good targets and good golf is consistent. If I'm supposed to hit driver off this tee, I'm supposed to hit driver off this tee. If it's an iron or a fairway wood to avoid a hazard or something like that, or maybe it pinches and you're making good strategic decisions, like I want you to stay the course. The biggest problem I've fallen into this in match play is when you start reacting to your opponent's every shot, it throws you off your game. And more importantly, you're operating with incomplete information. If someone hits their drives in the trees, you don't know what they're going to make. I mean, the odds are they're probably going to make a bogey or worse, but they might make a miraculous par. And let's say you chose to then hit a four iron off the tee and you hit a bad tee shot. Now you're way too far away from the hole. It's just, I don't believe that's smart. Same thing with like approach shots. If your opponent hit it tight and you're like, oh, I've got to hit it tight now also. And they hit it to 10 feet. You don't know if they're going to make birdie from there. You know, good target's a good target. Or if they totally miss the green, and that got you to change your target. It throws you out of your commitment and your decisions. And then the last example I'll give is putting because I think this one comes up a lot. There's always the situation in match play where let's say you have a free run at it and you don't necessarily have to like worry about the next putt as much. And a lot of people start hitting the putts harder to try and make them. And all that does is make the hole smaller. So similar to what I was saying before, good targets are good targets. Good speed is good speed with putting. You need to have good speed to make putts. And if you're trying to slam it in the hole, you're just making the hole smaller. And I think that's bad strategy. So I would say to anyone who wants to be better at match play is stop trying to react to your opponent and just hopefully use a lot of the tools we've given you on this show. We've had Scott Fawcett on. We've had Mark Brody on. We've talked about strategy a lot. We've talked about routines. I want you to do all of that and try and exist in your own bubble as much as possible and see what happens. And that's not always easy. I'm not saying you can't react to your opponent emotionally. It's hard to just not pay attention to what's going on. But the more and more you don't change your decisions based on what's going on, I think you're going to have a better chance to win. So yeah, if you ask me what should I do differently than stroke play, to be quite honest, I wouldn't do much differently. And there are some scenarios, maybe 
you know, if you're four up or something like that at the end of the match, then it becomes like a little game theory type stuff. I'm not going to get into that, but I'd rather people just approach it being like, I'm going to pick smart targets. I'm going to go through my routine and I'm just going to do what I would normally do. And hopefully I win versus just this back and forth between the opponent. It's just mentally exhausting. How was that? Yeah, good. (laughs) That was five minutes. minutes I think five, six, seven. I don't know. (laughs) What about a scenario where they tee off first that you're on a par three, for example, pins cut short, they tee off, they dump it in the water. <laughs> Do you take an extra club to get over that water now and, and get into that back bunker? Or, well, well or? I guess the question would be, would you take an uh, extra club no matter what? Because you know, that's the big, big, big trouble. You know, would I be trying to go like airmail the green? No, but I, I wouldn't be choosing a club towards the front of the green no matter what in that circumstance. So it puts you in a mental, I've played so many matches at this point, And I often, I'll tell people like when we play money games, I, I tell people in the beginning the same thing. I'm like, I'm just going to play and you tell me what I owe you or you owe me at the end. It's not that I don't care. I just know that I will play my best if I don't react that strongly to opponents. And I guess there are examples of golfers who could do that, but I would say for most players, and, and we try and give as generic as advice as possible on this show, I think if you take the standard golfer and they try and do something special and keep changing in match play, it's not going to result in better outcomes than if they just kind of stuck to their game and did what they were going to do, hopefully with a smart game plan. That's why I said we couldn't make an episode because when you asked me what That's do the you- episode. <laughs> you haven't been like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> when you said to me, what do you change in match play? I said- Nothing, really. The only time I would change is if someone, say, dumps a drive out of bounds off the tee. I might hit a more conservative club off the tee. Depend Depends what's in front of me, you know, but I might hit a more conservative club off the tee because you've got two shots on them already. So I would say there's probably extreme scenarios, like depending on where the match is. Like, let's say you were three or four up at that point. Yeah, maybe that's the right call. Again, we, we can't get into every single situation, but that's just my philosophy on it. Keep it simple, do the same stuff. And I think you'll just be a better golfer overall. Like my other point is, is that if you have like a match play strategy and a stroke play strategy and all these different like types of golfers you are, I'd rather you just do the same thing as much as possible because the more you choose the same targets, go through the same routines and have that consistency, I think you'll just become a stronger player overall. We can't control the outcomes. We can't force birdies. You know, even even if you were a robot, we know robots, 200 yards, what is it? 20 feet left, 20 feet right as a standard deviation, I believe. So even a robot's not going to hit exactly on their target. So if you think that you as a human can go out and say, right, by me firing at the pin, I'm more likely to hit it close to the pin. That's just not going to happen. That's just the, the math doesn't support it. The physics doesn't support it. Reality doesn't support it. You're not going to make more birdies by firing directly at the pin. You'll make the same amount of birdies by even a robot would make pretty much the same amount of birdies firing 10 feet more to the safe side of the, of the target. You know, it wouldn't be much difference. Match play is more random too. Like again, you cannot control your opponent what's going to happen. I'm probably going to piss a lot of people off by saying this, but if you asked me like what identifies the best golfer, I would say it would be a stroke play event because in match play, like, you know, you can make a seven on a hole and lose it and that's it. You're not penalized for that seven. Like you want to identify the stronger golfers. Like I would say it's a four, four round stroke play event. Match play is 
when you're one-on-one and heads up like that, it's, it's just more random in the outcomes and it's, it's harder to control because you don't know, you might have someone get hot for a few holes with their putter. And that happened to be the holes where you didn't get hot on. I love it. I enjoy it, but it is, it kind of tricks you into thinking some different things about golf that I don't think you should be doing. So those are my thoughts on match play. All right. You're up, Adam. Choose your question. This one's a shorter one (laughs) by Will Cooper. Why is traditional instruction so focused on the aesthetics of a swing, i.e. whether the club is laid off or across the line? I mean, my initial thoughts on that are because that's all they have to go. Wait, hold on. I'm going to stop. Let me stop you. This is going to be a short answer. I don't believe you. (laughs) I don't believe you for a second. We've done whole episodes on this, I think. (laughs) I got two points here. It's because that's all they've had to go on in the past is aesthetics you know before we had things like launch monitors 3d things like that golf was pretty much voodoo i mean most instructors you go back 10 years ago even some instructors now unfortunately don't don't even understand the ball flight laws i I think most people are more educated right now but yeah 10 years ago most instructors probably wouldn't understand the ball flight laws they don't know what makes a a shot fly in a certain way. You go back 20 years ago when I was learning the game, it was voodoo. It's like all you could do, the best you could do was correlate positions to the outcome, macro positions. But unfortunately, you know, you can hit it 30 yards left just by presenting the face three degrees closed and you can't see that in the macro look. So sometimes it's just a tough way of instructing before. But also, you know, why is it so focused on aesthetics? I think innately humans maybe even all animals are drawn towards symmetry right we find symmetrical faces more attractive you know even looking at the room in front of me i try i've tried my best to make it as symmetrical as possible because it just feels nicer more comfortable in general so i I know you know there's something about symmetry in nature and attraction definitely so yeah i think those two things that's all we've had to go on in the past and we're drawn towards symmetry. That's why we've gone, why it's traditionally been aesthetics. What are your thoughts, John? I think that makes perfect sense. It's just like, what do you see with your eyes? You know, we kind of got into that with the Aimpoint episode. Like, why do people like reading greens with their eyes? Because, you know, I think we're, we're used to like making judgments. We're so visual. And yeah, I think that's, it'll be interesting to see what, hopefully we're alive for it, but what golf will be like in 50 years in terms of, instruction and coaching is it going to be visual at all or will we have these like crazy micro tools that will allow us to not even worry about what it looks like i kind of echo your sentiments there i don't have too much to add all right so here is another question yeah we have covered this in the past but it's worth revisiting is it really better to play a fade or draw rather than aiming to hit it straight heard the argument that shot shape allows you to use the full width of the fairway, but ultimately isn't it just about dispersion left to right based on the face to path variance? My philosophy on shot shape or whatever is that I like simple, keep it, stick to one thing. If some people can hit a straight ball, go for it. Or if you can fade it and draw it, whatever gives you the smallest, we always think of like that big oval or ellipsis. I don't know if that's the right word for that. (laughs) Whatever tightens that the most, meaning if you can prove that your fades off the tee or with your irons have a tighter dispersion than your draws, hit the fade and vice versa. I don't really think about shot shape anymore. I really think about target and where the ball goes 
relative to that target. I really don't care if it curves or goes straight through the air. I don't really try and work it anymore, like work the ball. I'm just trying to, that's my target. I'm going to swing. Sometimes I draw it a little. Sometimes maybe I leave the face open and maybe it's like a push fade, especially with my driver now because I'm way more neutral in my swing path. So I think you choose one shape as best you can that gives you the tightest dispersion and stick with it. But I don't love the idea of, you know, using the full width of the fairway with shot shaping. You know, some people can play like that. Uh, Absolutely. They see the course that way and they can do that. That's just not the way I like to think about it. I just rather you pick a target and a shot that gives you the best chance of leaving it in a tighter dispersion window around that target. Whether you fade it or draw it, you're going to miss some to the left. You're going to miss some to the right. That's just the way golf works. Exactly. Yeah. There's no one shape that's better. There's a small caveat to that. We may do a full episode on that at one point. But yeah, fade or draw, I would stick to one and stick to your best one. When I was earlier in my career, I did run the math on it and tried to figure out, oh, well, if you could, if you had one shape that didn't miss to the left, then that would be great if there was danger on the left and and vice versa. And what I found was running the math was that the best shot to hit was always the one with the tightest dispersion, as long as it was overlaid correctly. So, you know, you plop it on the bird's eye view of the hole correctly. So if you fade it or draw it, don't worry about it. I wouldn't be changing between the two. Now that might be a good drill when you're training just to feel what a fade is like so you can be able to neutralize a draw in the future. I know you and I both do that, John. We sometimes hit fades on the range just so that it kind of trains us to not get too out of hand with our draw shot and vice versa. Yeah, on the golf course, I'm playing predominantly a straighter to slight draw shot, and I don't veer from that unless I have to, unless I like I'm forced to fade it around a tree. But that might be once around, if that. I mean, the physics on it. People say, "Oh, well, if you aim down the left and fade it, you've got so much more room because you're using the full width of the fairway." Well, no, the the physics of it, you still have to have the same variance in face and path. You know, if you are a player who has a square path and you've got X, say, four degrees of face variance around that, you will have a certain dispersion. And if you're a player who has a left path and is fading it into the target and you have four degrees of face variance around it, you will have the same width of dispersion. And ultimately is the width of dispersion that creates the quality of player, not whether you have a one-way miss or another, which, by the way, a one-way miss is a complete misconception or or fallacy anyway. Every tour pro has a two-way miss. They'll miss equal amount right and left. So you can't get away from these things. So yeah, to answer the question, the tightest dispersion is best for you, whether that's a fade or draw, maybe dependent upon the player, might even change from week to week, but typically most players stick to one shot. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business like I have to, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and free. 
And you can always support us by checking them out at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just another job board. It is a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. I know a ton of people who are using it for multiple reasons, and LinkedIn has absolutely exploded over the last few years. There's wonderful content on business ideas, but more importantly, it gives you access to professionals that you can't find anywhere else. Anyone who runs a small business knows that hiring is easy when you can get that quality candidate. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate from LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. LinkedIn knows that people like me and other small businesses like Adam or maybe you are wearing so many hats and you might not have the time or resources to hire. It's not like all of us can have our own HR department. That's why there are over 2.5 million small businesses using LinkedIn for hiring. If you want to give it a shot and post your job for free, go to linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Next question. Your choice. In the midst of swing work, he says it's needed to get where I want to go. Do I stick with my old irons and learn swing changes? Or do I go and get new irons that help me make the change? At least that's how I interpreted the question. I would say get the new irons. Very likely to get the new irons. You don't want equipment holding you back from making the change. If you're committed to a change then get the new irons that are going to help you make the change. So for an example of that would be if someone's using incredibly upright irons, so the toe is sitting up in the air, and they're fighting early extension. Well, the irons are making you early extend, or they're, they're giving benefit to early extension. So, you know, trying to, trying to battle early extension with irons that are encouraging it, it's just not going to go well. Because anytime you do the move you want, you're going to hit it worse. And so, you know, we are just creatures of conditioning. And if we get conditioned, good move equals bad shot, we will go against that. So luckily with something like that, you can flatten them over time as well. So if I am working on a player as early extension, they're trying to get rid of it. We will go, right, let's flatten the, the iron one degree and work on it. As they get better with the movement, we'll flatten it another degree. And you keep going until the club snaps and they... Uh... <laughs> I mean, you can, you can get to that point, but I think most clubs, you know, if they're forged especially, they, you can bend them a significant amount. I bent my cast irons about four, four degrees or so. So, yeah, I would say get the clubs that help you make the change if you're committed to the change. If you're a regular player, you're not going to make huge changes in your swing. Get clubs that are fit around what your swing does already. What are your thoughts, John? Yeah. I would say, you know, in general, you don't want to fight your equipment if you do have access to a fitter. You just don't want to be at odds with the types of irons or driver you're playing. I'll just do a quick piggyback question. Someone asked, I got fitted as a 25 handicap five years ago, and now I'm a nine handicap. Great job, by the way. Should I get another fitting? And similar thing, if your tendencies, I'm going to assume that going from a 25 to a 10, the way you deliver the club has changed significantly. Probably your swing speed, how much load you're applying to the shaft, how you deliver your irons, the lie angle, your strike tendencies. So yeah, if you've gone through any type of massive change in your game, whether that there's speed training, you know, upgrades and, and technical work with a coach, it is possible that your equipment needs will change. This has happened to me where I've had to adjust the lie angles on my irons. 
So sometimes you need new clubs. Sometimes it could be just a lie angle adjustment with your current clubs. But yeah, I think go back to our episodes of Woody Lashin. We've done it on driver, irons, fairway woods, putters, everything. And you can learn a lot. I mean, those are true master classes, I would say, that we we offered from him. But you do not want to fight against your equipment. So I'm, I'm all for that, making that change. Luckily, if, most if necessary. Most drivers are adjustable these days. So, you know, say I go through a big swing change where I'm getting someone to hit from five degree down and we go to a more level or even slightly up with angle of attack, you may need to bring the loft down. Yep. To, yeah, to that, that's that. an easy change. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, All right, moving along. This is like a, maybe it's a three-part question. I'll try and tackle them all. I'm occasionally breaking 80 as a 10 handicap. What key skills are separating a five handicap from a 10 handicap? Uh, how do you eliminate bogeys from the scorecard without gambling for birdies? And when do you get more aggressive with your wedges instead of aiming for the middle of the green? Okay, so I'll try and tackle all three of these separately. What skills are separating a five handicap player from a 10 handicap player? I don't know. I think it depends. And I think that's you know one of the reasons why strokes gained has become so helpful and and instructive on what's separating you. So to anyone who's wondering, well, I'm a 15, I want to get to a 10, the answers could be different. I would say generically speaking, it would probably be your your approach and tee shot play is going to be a lot of it, not most of it, and your wedges and putter will be some of it. But you wouldn't know until you kept track. And now that we have these systems like Arcos and ShotScope or apps, Swing U, Golf Metrics, Decade, there's a lot of apps and everything where you can track all your shots on the course and you could see, all right, here's what's separating me from that handicap level. We've done a whole episode on this, so you can go back into our our category. So uh, I think there's a generic answer, but you're more interested in the customized answer and you don't know until you actually do that analysis. And it's not that hard to do anymore. That's kind of like my stab at saying what skills uh, are separating them because it might be might be putting for some people it might be approach play and then we got to get into well is it a ground contact issue are you just having problems with face control you can get very deep into this but we have in other episodes so i'll leave it there second question how to eliminate bogeys from the scorecard without gambling for birdies simple don't gamble for birdies if, if you are with that mentality thinking you need to gamble for birdies i think you're behind the eight ball a lot of birdies come from par fives knocking it around the green on two and getting up and down most players tour players they average about 4.5, 4.6 strokes on par fives and par threes and par fours. They're slightly over par. So most players are just making their birdies on par fives and eliminating you know, bogeys or worse on the par threes and par fours. Um, how do they do that? Good ball striking, good targets. They're not gambling. So I didn't like that word. How to eliminate bogeys without gambling for birdies. You can accomplish that with good strategic decisions and good strategic decisions do not imply aggressiveness, especially with approach shots. Tee shots, yeah, you want to advance it as far as possible, keep it in play. So that's my answer to that question. And last, when do you get more aggressive with your wedges instead of aiming in the middle of the green? I think this depends on the skill level. So the better you are, the closer you can aim to the pin. So let's say you get inside of 100 yards and you have an intermediate wedge shot. I still don't think you should be firing dead at a flag. I always want to avoid like the four quadrants of the green. So if it's front left, front right, back right, back left pins, I'm always adjusting closer to the meat of the green in those scenarios. Will I adjust closer from 50 yards than 150 yards? Yeah, I will. 
but also I'm a better ball striker than most of you, I'll be honest. So I think this depends on the player, but as you get closer to the hole with wedges and your skill level increases, yes, I believe you can aim closer to the pin with the caveat being do not short side yourself at all costs because that is where the sloppy bogeys and doubles come from. You still want to get on the putting surface. That is your number one priority is getting the ball on the putting surface. So yes, you can adjust closer to the pin, but do not get greedy. All right, I'm done. What was the initial question to that? <laughs> what separates a... Yeah, what's the skills separating a five handicap player from a 10 handicap player? What's your take on that? It depends. It's player dependent, definitely. I mean, you can't really say that, you know, I've had 15 handicappers, for example, who are excellent at ground strike. And I've had scratch handicappers who, you know, get the shanks. So it's player dependent. And the issue might even change from week to week, day to day. So, you know, as, as I said, that scratch player who gets bouts of the shanks, you know, they need to work more on their face strike skill. But the way I would analyze it for everybody to find out what you need to work on would be use your stats and look at what's your distance control like, you know, relative to your aim as well. And this is where stats fall down a little bit is that they, they always take it relative to the flag, right? But what about if your target is the middle of the green? So this is why I get people to keep their own stats. What is your distance control relative to your target? If your target was the middle of the green and you hit it, great. What about distance, maximum distance? Not just distance control, but maximum distance. How do you stack up relative to the handicap you want to be? So what's the average distance of a scratch player, John, off the tee? Off the tee, I mean, I would say 240 to 260 is a good window for most. I would say that the standard deviation on that's probably quite large because you're going to have a lot of scratch players who can hit at 290, 300, but not many who are hitting at 210. Yeah, exactly. And and that's another thing as well is that you know you you might be on the lower end or below distance for the handicap you want. It doesn't mean you can't reach the handicap you want to get to. It just means that there's maybe some more low-hanging fruit there. That's that's an area that... And we can put math on it, right? For every 20 yards you gain, what is it? 0.2, 0.3 of a shot that you gain per mathematically. Shot, yeah. yeah, so if you gain yes. 20 yards, if you gain 20 yards and you hit it 14 times in a round, you're gaining 2.8 to, uh, what, 4.2 shots a round by getting that 20 yards or so. Yeah, it's significant. So, and the other one, so we got distance control. How good is your distance control? How good is your distance? And how good is your directional control? So just looking at those three areas and then tying that into the impact laws. You know, if, you're, if your distance sucks, then you're going to be looking at strike quality, angle of attack, things like that, club head speed. If your distance control sucks, it's going to be a strike issue for the most part. It's going to be ground contact or face contact. And with how modern clubs are so forgiving, it's very likely to be a ground contact issue. And then if it's direction that's costing you the most, this would be more elite players are going to fall into this, right? It's very rare that they're going to have uh, strike issues, but they will get directional issues. And so that's going to be a face and path or face and or path issue. So those are the physical skills. But after that, I've seen some good players with great physical skills but they still cannot score. I've got a player at the moment who hits it. I play with him. He hits it pretty close to myself. He drives it past me. He's got good strikes, but he just scores 10, 15 shots higher than me. Why? Club selection sucks. Recovery sucks. His judgment of lies and wind 
you know, when he gets in around the green, he selects a wrong shot all the time. Now, I'm not going to tell him because I want to take his money each week. <laughs> his strategy as well, you know, he'll aim at a pin that's on the right when there's water tucked right. You only have to miss it a yard or two right. It bounces, rolls down the hill into the water, and he's going for that. <laughs> and I'm probably slightly better than him accuracy-wise, and I'm, I'm going more for the middle of the green. So there are mental issues then. And so I have these things in a sheet that I track, and when I go on I'm playing lessons, I, I track it with players. It's in my next-level golf course. But, yeah, you need to figure out what it is for you. Is it the physical skills or is it the mental skills? I mean, it's going to be a combination of all of them, but you'll see that one of them stands out as, right, I really need to improve this one. And and these things apply whether you're a pro or a, a complete beginner. You know, your approach to changing these things might be slightly different, but they still apply to every player. All right. Let's do more questions. Let's just keep going. Your turn. How should I grip the club? I've been baseball style but now finding the finger lock method more comfy. Uh, I don't know what the advantages or disadvantages are. So basically 10 finger versus overlap in the hands, which is very unnatural, right? Most people naturally would go to like a 10 finger or even slightly split grip if they were never told anything about the club. I don't, I don't see a brand new player take an overlap grip. You know, it's just yeah, not started, a natural thing. I think I played golf for a year with the baseball grip. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, there are certain advantages and disadvantages to it. I think the split is very important. So if you have too big a split between the hands, even a 10 finger is more split effectively than an overlap. What happens when you split is the right hand will actually slow the club down. And if, if everybody listening grabs a club now and splits their hand by 10 inches or so and then tries to make as fast a swing as they can, you just can't. There's no. There's very little speed there. Whereas when you place your hands on together, you can create more speed. And the reason for that is as you're swinging, as you're releasing down at the bottom, the club head is traveling incredibly fast. Your right hand, if it's split, it can't keep up with it. It can't keep up with it. And so if it's split too much, it will slow the club head down. So having your hands together you lose some of that effect. In fact, have you ever seen guys like Vijay Singh and Fred Couples at impact? Their right hand is actually off the club, just at and post-impact. They've kind of instinctively found out that if I let go of the club with the right hand, I can create some more speed. I wouldn't recommend that. It's certainly not a conscious decision on their part. I think I saw a video recently of Patrick Harrington with like a he was like experimenting with I could be getting this wrong, it was like a double overlap grip with like to like his right hand even like more over his left hand to get speed, which obviously is going exactly with what you're saying. I, I Hopefully I'm remembering that properly. It just popped into my head. But yeah, the more overlapped you are, the less effect of that slowing down of the right hand you get at impact. The only problem with that, lots of players will say, well, let's take the right hand off completely then. Well, the problem with that is you don't then get the power from the talking the club in other parts of the swing. And so without going too far down a physics rabbit hole, the correct balance or what we have found over hundreds of years of playing it instinctively is that a single or maybe a double overlap grip is the nice balance between getting some torque in earlier parts of the swing whilst reducing that slowing down action through impact. So it's a nice balance of, of the two. So I like, Furyk uses a, a double overlap, right? I think he's, he's used that in his normal swing all his life. 
We did an entire episode on this with Shaheen Nakjavani. So you can go back in the catalog. We we kind of did the pros and cons of different grips. I don't know. I think I tweeted this once and people got so offended. It shows you people on Twitter can get offended by anything. It was kind of a joke. I use an interlock grip and I said, like, I have no clue how someone swings a golf club like with overlap. Like, I just, I couldn't even hold on to the club. It's so, I feel like I have so much, to me, it's more of a face control thing. So, like, I feel like I have way more control and that's always intuitively in my golf swing without even understanding it for years. I think I was very always focused on on the club face orientation throughout my swing. And that's kind of where I settled on my stronger interlock grip is I just felt way more control over the face with that grip. But there's no one, my, I was joking around with the overlap thing. There's no one right grip for everyone. I think you need to find the one that matches up with, with your tendencies the best. I think there are some, I mean, there's some really good golfers playing cross-handed I've seen videos of. I mean, if it works, go for it. But I think they're outliers especially also with that, the, the, the 10 finger baseball grip, like that's an outlier for sure. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I, f- I find the same as you that that right hand being on a certain, certain position on the club, I can feel the face a little better. If I took a 10 finger grip, I feel like I have too much control of the face. I feel like I can yeah, actually it, talk exactly. it and twist it a little bit too yes. much. Whereas yes. if I went to a double overlap, I feel like I have no ability to talk or twist the club. I mean, that, that might be a good thing. I, I've, I've experimented with it a, a little, but I haven't actually done any testing with it. But this is inspiring me to actually do some some GC quad testing and see what the standard deviations of club face are if I do a double overlap, even a triple overlap. Maybe maybe I place all one hand on top of each, each other and do a few tests like that, see how it affects speed. I feel like that would mess with like your loft presentation and like kind of the the how the hands are at impact. I'm just trying to feel this in my hands right now. I don't know. It'd be an interesting test, see what happens with the double overlap. Well, an interesting thing is when you when you take the right hand out, either by getting that right hand off the club completely or putting the right hand on top of the left, you lose the ability to talk and twist that club. And so that can actually help some people. You know, early releases, for example, they swing to the top and then they have that huge casting motion. Well, a big part of that is they are talking the club. They are actively applying a force to the club to cast that club out. That's a big part of it. You know, I've heard Sasha McKenzie talk about how, you know, better better players have kind of softer wrists at the top of the swing and they I don't want to say add lag, but you know, they don't they don't cast it out a lot at the top of the swing. And so I've had good success where with players where I just get them to do a, a double overlap, feel as if the right hand isn't on the club and make a swish and they get much better dynamics, much better lag, but they might not increase their speed that way. And lots of people associate lag with speed. It's not, you know, you can lag it, but if you don't have the ability to get that lag out, you're not going to create the speed either. So, I mean, that's another rabbit hole. It's, I do apologize. <laughs> yeah, experiment with it a little bit. I mean, the answer to it all is try, experiment, get some good data on it, and then retest a little later. And eventually you'll find one that, that works better for you. That's one you should use in the moment. Over time, that thing, that might evolve as well a little bit. Yeah, grip is very personal. Like right now I'm doing, I'm a super... Sh- 
strong in my grip orientation, but with green side wedges, I'm going to an incredibly weak grip, like exaggerating in the opposite direction. Cause I just, I'm looking for something new there and that's giving me, you know, better loft presentation, more using the bounce, more better ground contact. So yeah, we experiment in practice. We try and verify and then bring it out on the course and pay attention to what happens. There's no right answers. All right, let's move on to another question. All right, here it is. Can you guys talk about hitting long irons off the tee? Where should you tee them up in your stance? Is there ever a time to hit up on the ball with the three or four iron off the tee? This, I guess, could be personal too. I mean, I'll speak anecdotally. I definitely need, I think in general, like I remember from from the image from Hogan's book, like as the iron gets longer, the more you're putting it up in your stance for most players. Uh, That's true for me. If I am hitting... I don't do it often because I like hitting my driver so much, but you know, there's a hole on my course where I think the correct play for me is to hit five or six iron off the tee. So yeah, it's definitely up in my stance. These are also things I experiment with in practice. I want to make sure that I have the right tee height and ball position that gives me the best chance of striking it well and controlling the start direction and curvature of the shot. So I find that If I move the ball towards the middle of my stance with my swing tendencies, I could catch it a little bit heavy, de-loft a little bit too much, hook it a little much. So the good matchup for me with a longer iron is just farther up in my stance. I don't tee it very high. Am I hitting up on the ball? Potentially, I might be. I haven't measured it on the course, but I could see me having like a just by nature of the ball t- being teed up and it's so far up in my stance, I could be one or two up with an iron and that's okay because it's teed up. I don't necessarily know if that's the right answer for everyone though. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd keep it simple. Just push the ball a little farther forward in the stance than normal. I wouldn't really go for super high shots with those long irons. Like say I'm hitting a, a four iron into a par three and the pin's tucked short I'm not trying to attack the pin. Now, I could push the ball farther forwards. I could even get more behind it and hit it higher. That's possible. I can do that. Hit slightly up on it and the the ball's going to go higher because you're presenting more loft as well. Definitely an option for me. It's a skill I have. But whether I would use that, no, because am I really going to go for a tucked pin when it's 220 out? No, that's, that's bad strategy. So, yeah, it's very rare that I would use that unless I'm just out there, you know, trying to hit good shots, not scoring that day and just playing for a little bit of ego boost. There is something crazy. Sometimes I don't use a T with my irons on par threes. There was a, I'm only saying this because the guy who just won the US Open, Wyndham Clark, people were like freaking out because he would throw his ball down on the tee box and kind of roll it around looking for a good spot and then just hit. And people were like, what is he doing? Like I've never seen a pro not tee it up with their irons. I kind of like smack the ground and create like a little T for myself more with like shorter irons. Yeah, I I do that a lot. I tested this one time on a launch monitor. I believe that my dispersion is tighter. Assuming ground contact and and face contact are good. I've just noticed the tighter dispersion when I don't tee it up with my irons. But you are sacrificing a little bit of the help from the T with ground contact. So... I wouldn't recommend that for like a beginner or intermediate player or anyone for that matter, but I've just found some better results with not teeing it up with a lot of irons on par threes. So there's just a random fun fact for you there yeah, that no one asked for. <laughs> there are trade-offs of it, right? So yeah, if you're teed up nicely, then you can get a better strike quality 
you're less likely to get debris trapped between the face and the, and the ball. But More spin for sure. Yeah, more consistency with things like launch angle, ball speed, spin rate, so more consistency with distance outcome. But as you said, the trade-off might be when the ball is teed up, you're, you're having to make an, a micro-adjustment to the swing, and that might affect path, face, swing plane, things like that, which might affect consistency of outcome. So the only way, is, as you've done, is test it. Hit a bunch of balls off the ground, hit a bunch of balls off a small tee, hit a bunch of balls off a higher tee, see which one gives you the better outcomes, use that one. Yeah, I'd say for most players, the trade-off is going to be better with the tee. So I didn't mean to influence people into not teeing it up off par threes. I retract that statement. All right, let's keep moving. Next question, your choice. So Graham Roper gave a good question. I don't know the exact math on this, but we can give a general rule. How much of a difference can altering the lie angle of irons and wedges make? Now, I found a good chart earlier from John Graham. I think Eric Barzetsky did the math behind it. It's a really good chart, so Google it. The numbers that I got from them, now bear in mind I had only had one cup of coffee when I did this quick math, but (laughs) if you have a club that is three degrees flatter or more upright, so three degrees toe down or three degrees upright, if you're presenting 10 degrees of loft, so say a driver, that's going to change the direction of the face by half a degree. So to put that into meaningful terms, you're going to get six yards more curvature and about 10 yards offline. So three degrees down, toe down, is going to be 10 yards more to the right with a driver, roughly. If you're hitting, say, a seven, eight iron, that same toe down or toe up effect, three degrees, is going to produce a 1.4 degree face opening or closing to put that into numbers it would hit it seven yards more offline and if you do it with a wedge 45 degrees loft presented at 100 yards you're going to get about five yards offline so three degrees toe down would hit it 10 yards right with a driver seven yards right with a seven iron five yards right with a wedge so reasonably significant for but but then three degrees is a significant change as well so i i don't know if that math is 100 percent. i mean please correct me by email if i've done it wrong but i think i think the, the good general rule of thumb about lie angle i don't know if this was exactly the question but the more loft the more important it becomes so getting the lie angle right on your wedges is way more important than a fairway wood or driver it has more influence on your directional accuracy or control as loft increases. So getting your lie angle correct on your irons and wedges is very important. And I'll mention Woody Lashing and go back to our episodes with him. Modern drivers are like pretty upright. Not that big of a deal though, because there's such little loft. That's always the easiest way I could remember it or think about it. But in terms of that math, I got no clue. So I'm not even going to take a stab at that. Yeah. The lower the loft, the less of an effect it makes. If you had a zero degree loft which putters are even about four degrees. But say you had a zero degree loft and you change the lie angle, it has no effect on the face. Whereas when you angle it more, when you have more loft, that same lie angle change is going to have a a different effect on the face. So as a percentage, yes, it's correct. It has more effect on the wedges. But as a total outcome, because, you know, with a driver, 
you're sending it so much farther than a wedge, the trigonometry of it means that the driver has a bigger effect on outcome. As I said, 10 yards offline with a driver, 5 yards offline with a wedge. As a percentage, it's bigger for the wedge, but as a total absolute value, it's bigger for the driver, if that makes sense. And there's also ground contact considerations. Like if your club is not interacting with the turf in a like level, I know you can see this on your GC quad when it measures dynamic lie angle. Like if your toe is way up in the air, your heels way up in the air with a wedge or an iron, that's not a good thing for directional misses. It's also not good for ground contact as well. Like some funky things can happen at impact. So yeah, lie angle is crazy important. Yeah, it would matter more on a tight lie, definitely. I mean, people see it with the divot board training aid, right? They come in more toned oh, yeah. down because yeah, it's you such can a see it on there. yeah, because it's such a tight lie. When the ball is fluffed, it's extreme. Up, yeah, yeah. When the ball yeah. is fluffed up a little bit, it makes less of an effect. So, but yeah, I mean, you don't want to be too extreme with it. I'm three to four degrees down, you know, with my clubs. I have had standard lies where they come into impact perfectly flush, and I just don't like it. <laughs> I hit everything left you know, a good 10 yards left. And, you know, I can open the face and straighten it out, but then the ball flight's weaker. So I've just found that three degrees, four degrees down for me is fine. I have no issues with striking the ball with that much, and it helps me uh, reduce some of the left miss tendency. Awesome. All right, ready for the next one? Yeah, what have you got, John? This one might be on your list, but this is a question from my buddy, Chris. So he's working with a swing instructor, has some swing path goals. And his question was, how do you work on your swing path without access to TrackMan or any other launch monitor that would measure swing path? So this really relates to most golfers because most golfers don't have access to accurate swing path information. So how do you work on swing path without this feedback? So you can look at patterns. So if you are a push player, if your straightest shots are pushes and you hook and your good shots are draws, then you're an in to out swinger of the club. And if your shots are more pull, slice and fade patterns, you're an out to in player. The other way to look at it is to hit shots until you hit one on the target and look at which way it curved to get there. If your on-target shots curved right to left to get there, you're an in-to-out player. If your on-target shots curved left to right to get there, you're an out-to-in player. So yeah, that's the simple idea behind it. Yeah, I think you've got to look at the curve when you're thinking swing path. You look more, you know, how do you? We always talk about reading your ball flight. You're looking more towards the curvature of the shot, and I'm a perfect example of someone I had a very extreme swing path for years. I didn't have access to a launch monitor that measured that, but I knew, you know, when I went on a GC quad or a track man, it got like out to eight, 10, 12 degrees sometimes into out. And I knew that because I saw these hooks on the golf course. And then over time, I just experimented the best I could to not make the ball hook as much, which was, as we said, doing the opposite so many times on this show, experimenting with fades And then the ball just kind of started hooking less and got straighter. And then, yeah, now that I have, I have a GC3 now and my path's down to like zero with the driver and a seven iron, it's like three or four degrees. You look at the curvature of the shot as your primary feedback. I think if you're looking at swing path changes and you don't need a track man to do this, as Rashid Wallace said, the ball don't lie. I don't think you're going to get that reference, Adam. No, I didn't. Rashid Wallace was a 
talented slash insane NBA player in the 90s and 2000s. Super entertaining player, but there's this, there's still a GIF out there that gets GIF, GIF. It's yeah. GIF, right? No GIF. one says GIF. People <laughs> use it all the time. GIF. I think it was, I think I it was when he article. was on the knit. <laughs> I've never said GIF in my life until yeah, I, I think just said it. I say GIF as well, but I read an article the other day that says it's actually GIF. I can't remember the reason why. That's crazy. That article's wrong. (laughs) Yeah, there's a gif of him when he was on the Knicks. He got so many technical fouls in his career for screaming at the refs, and that was one of the ball don't lie. So yeah, a lot of PJ Torp, I've heard Rory McIlroy say it all the time. He's like, I use the track, man, but I look at my ball flight. Like The ball flight has most of the clues you need, and with swing path, if you're seeing these crazy slices or hooks like it's an excessive into out or out to in swing path like that's your culprit and you got to figure out a way to do less of that and if you do do less of it the ball will not curve as much predominantly yeah you don't need exact numbers as you said i mean no yeah you don't need to chase numbers i don't want people doing that no i mean whether whether you're five degrees into out or three degrees into out that's not going to be the difference between whether you're a good or great player it's really not no (laughs) you can tell if if you're five degrees out in or something the ball flight is going to tell you that your patterns are going to tell you that the caveat with that is always with the driver because of gear effect you know if you are striking off center that can send the ball down there differently but look at your patterns with irons because there's no gear effect or very little gear effect with irons so they the patterns with the irons will tell you especially long irons seven or six ironers your best way to really see this stuff i think yeah even four if you can hit it i mean you you had a tweet the other day about you know irons being great training aid they they are great for seeing any curvature because it exaggerates if you're one degree here or there it's going to be a more exaggerated curvature so it's really good for for that when is it good to have exact numbers I found it good when I was trying to neutralize my path. I was the same as you. I knew my path was into out before I ever went on a track man. But when I went on the track man, I saw, oh, wow, it's seven, eight, nine degrees into out. That's pretty excessive. Let's try and neutralize this a little bit. And so it was great to have the exact numbers in that case because feel is not real, right? And for me to get it to zero felt like I was chopping across it 20 degrees, it was like unbelievable, especially when the first time I, I went on a track man and I tried to do it. Over time, it became more comfortable and zero for me now is, is more natural. But again, you don't need these exact numbers to, to play this golf. You can just look at the amount of curvature. I would say, what is too much curvature? Well, I have ways in my accuracy plan of showing you that. But if you're having to start the ball outside of the green, so say, for example, it's a... 20 yard wide a 30 yard wide green or something and you're having to start the ball in the water on the right and curve it to the middle of the green that's probably too much <laughs> or if you boomerang ha- yeah if you have to start a ball out of bounds to get it to land on your target that's the point where you say all okay, right you might have a little bit too much they're, again there are guys like bubba watson who do that right they'll send the ball ha- out of bounds happily knowing it's going to come back in so we can't say that for everybody but i don't like to see huge amounts of curvature you don't see that on tour as a percentage of the distance they're hitting well, you're also giving up for most players, if you're not a tour level ball striker, you're giving up a lot of efficiency. Yeah. If you're the the slicer, you're giving up distance probably with those matchups. Or if you were like me, big hook, you're probably not spinning it much. And that's a problem. I found that a problem in wind. You know, if I was curving it too much, I play in a lot of wind. It was just the ball was just curving way too much into a headwind because that exacerbates 
curvature of the shot more. I wasn't holding greens as much as I could. If the conditions were firming up, if I have this torpedo shallow hook coming into a green, it's just not going to stop as much. There's not enough spin and stopping power. So yeah, there were, there were a lot of reasons why I tried to neutralize that and hit not a totally straight ball flight, but more of a tight draw too straight. But yeah, you can play golf with more curve, but you know, you might be giving up some things and there's, I think we always talk about avoiding big extremes is is one of the keys to golf. It's, It's hard to play this game at extremes. You have to do a lot of things really well and your margin of error starts to get smaller and smaller. That's one thought I would have on that. I look at how it affects other variables as well. When your path is too much into out or out in, it also affects the low point of the swing. And for example, a player who is too much into out, that's going to move the low point back. And so they're going to get very shallow with their irons. That might be okay with a driver where you're trying to hit up on it. But it's going to be very shallow with the irons. And then lots of players will start to get picky. They'll start to bottom out a little early, maybe hit a few drop kicks. The reverse, you know, where someone is out to in, they'll get very, very steep on it because it moves the low point forwards. And again, that can create inefficiencies in terms of distance. So, yeah, so again, like you said, avoid extremes with it. What I'd say with it is, you know, having played on launch monitors for probably 10, 15 years now and having my own one here, I rarely look at the path when I'm hitting on my GC quad. I used to when I first got it. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, the path is three. Yeah, but now I don't look at it. What I do is simple algorithms. If the ball was on target, then the face was appropriate for the path. All right, if the, if the ball went too far left, the face was too closed for that path. If the ball went too far right, the face was open for that path. So I, I'm predominantly tinkering with face direction. Now, if I'm hitting on target shots and they're curving a hell of a lot to get there, that's when I would change the path. But again, you don't need a launch monitor to see that. You can see that in the ball flight. Yeah, even I've only had, I upgraded to the GC3, which only, it does give you path. It doesn't give you face angle. And, you know, you have to put that white sticker on it. So when I first got it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to put the sticker on all my clubs and just, you know, play around, see what happens. I think I've had it for four or five months now. I don't put the white stickers on anymore. I kind of benchmarked where I was. I'm like, oh yeah, that, those are my path numbers now. Great, whatever. It didn't really matter that much to me because again, I'm predominantly looking at the ball flight. Where did it start? How much did it curve? That's it. <laughs> you can go a little crazy. We have an episode on, on how to practice with a launch monitor. You can go back to that one and you can see more of our thoughts on that. One more little thing I'll say that there's always this argument between old ball flight laws and new ball flight laws. Actually, that was a question, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah, that was. You want to do that yeah, one? Let's, let's go there. I got it. I have okay. it here. You want me to read it? Yeah, yeah. All right. It was face versus swing path. I learned that swing path was how shot started and face determined the finish. Chasing scratch pod believes the opposite. <laughs> Just <Right. laughs> it makes it sound like <laughs> makes it sound like Mike and Eli figured out <laughs> the ball flight loss. They figured out that face starts it and the path bends it. Oh my god, these guys are all no, we love those guys, but that's kind of funny the way it was worded. Yeah, that's right. Face sends it, path bends it. Is a good yeah, way, that's that's the best way to do it. But it's also yeah. easy to mix that up as well and say the wrong <laughs> the wrong word at the wrong place and think that it's correct. I mean, again, it goes down to face is the biggest factor. 
I mean, mathematics, physics-wise, it's the biggest factor. You change the face by one degree, it's going to have a bigger effect than if you change the, the path by one degree. The ball curves in the opposite direction to where the swing path was relative to the face. So the more you swing left, the more that ball is going to curve to the right. All else being equal. Always have to add that part. Yes, yeah, so, so I would say the the old ball flight laws, we used to think the ball lands where the face was pointing. The more you swing right, the more it curves left. There's lots of similarities between the old and new ball flight laws. I think it was just the starting direction. Yeah, that's muddled. what screwed me up yeah. so much. Like I remember, no disrespect to Golf Digest, but like reading those articles as a kid being like, if you want to hit a fade point the club where you want the ball to finish. And that just made me hit huge blocks and push fades because if you want to hit a fade, because it was talking about face path like to your target. And I was like, oh, square to the target. Great. But it's not. It actually has to be close to the target to start the ball left. So it would curve back. That screwed me up. And some players, like it was fine. You can still have good outcomes with information that's technically wrong, but I think you'd have a better chance of getting it right. And now we know that the face predominantly influences the start direction of the ball more than swing path. It's between 60 to 60 to 85% based on loft. As loft decreases, the face path, the face angle, sorry, where the club is pointing at impact has more influence on the start direction than swing path, like a lot more influence. Yeah, I think where this used to screw me up is those situations where you had a tree in front of you and you're trying to bend it around. And I would do the old thing of (laughs) aim my feet where I wanted the ball to start and aim the club face at the tree because that's the, the flag was behind the tree. And then you obviously hit the shot and it ends up clipping the tree. Yeah, the real answer is you got to aim your feet farther right of where you want the ball to start and then aim your face somewhere in between the target and your feet line. But again, what you do in... The swing yeah, or through impact different. might be yes. different to how you set up. That's why lots of players like Nick Faldo used the old ball flight thinking and was still able to hit great shots because he wasn't doing at impact what he was setting up for. I think the old thing that was wrong was the ball starts on the path. That was the information that was wrong. The commonality, the thing that was right between old and new ball flight laws is if your face is close to the path, the ball's going to curve left. If the face is open to the path, the ball's going to curve right. That's remained consistent. And I think that's more valuable information to the player as well. Absolutely. And huge thank you to Mike and Eli for figuring that out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can't wait to get the tweets on that one. That was just wonderful how it was worded. (laughs) All right. Do we want to... I think that one was my question. On your sheet, though. So let's do... You're you're up next is what I'm saying. Okay, right. I got to select one. Okay, short one. A really good golfer's born or made? Ooh. Well, I mean, it's it's (sighs) nature versus nurture thing. Yeah, this is going to go like deep. Yeah, your training is going to be the biggest thing. I mean, all we can control is really what we can control. (laughs) The fact is we can control. We can't control our genetics or anything, but it remains a fact. If you've got X amount of golfers 
to all do oh, wait, the same I'm thing. looking at, wait, I have a shared note on Apple. I guys have to reveal this. So Adam has shared notes with me on his Apple notes. <laughs> he's added a zero, folks. Yeah, if you, you got, got a thousand, thousand golfers. golfers to do all the same things, yeah. he's added a zero. Okay, go ahead. So if you got a thousand golfers, if you got 996 golfers <laughs> to do all the same things, the exact same, tr- they got up at the same time, they ate the same thing, they trained the exact same way with the same information, there's going to be one that stands out above the rest. There's, it's just is. Different players got different abilities to learn, different physical abilities, balance, coordination, all these different things that we don't really have as much control over. And so, yeah, there are there is a certain amount where there's that they're born right. It didn't matter how much training I I did. I'm not, never going to beat Usain Bolt in the hundred meter sprint, but. Golf is one of those few sports, I believe, where what you do can really override a lot of the genetic differences and could get you to the top. Things like strategy. Most players could all, if they trained in the right way, get to the point where they could hit the ball far enough to compete at a decent level. Not everybody could become a long drive champ, right? Not everybody, no matter how much they train, is going to swing the club 150 mile an hour. But I think a lot of people, if they start at a young age and they do the right training, could get a 110 mile an hour, which is going to allow them to hit it far enough to get on tour. So uh, I think golf is the one where we can override a lot through intelligence, through strategy, through, yeah, just all the factors that go into the game. Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, I see it with my children. It's just so interesting. I think having children is like a great experiment. Well, I shouldn't say experiment, but <laughs> it, it's just so interesting to see these things pour out because my son and my daughter, I think we've parented them the same way and done the same things with them mostly, but they have entirely different skill sets. Like my son's really good at some things that, that my daughter and vice versa. Like some things come easily to him physically and, and mentally and vice versa for her. But yeah, I think Ben Hogan said he believes that all golfers have the ability to shoot in the 70s. That was his belief. I think that was in his book. I don't know if I 100% agree with that, but I think, yeah, if if someone started at an early age and and had the right habits and and coaching and stuff, yeah, I think that's in the cards for most people. I think this game's a lot harder for people who take it up as an adult than a child, for sure. definitely. And there are, you know, when you talk about like getting to elite levels, like I see this in, in the tournaments that I play in. There's just some players who have, they've got gifts and I still don't think science has the answer to this yet. You know, neurologically, like stuff we could do with our body or dealing with pressure and stuff like that, that we can't quite put our finger on yet, but I see it. There's just certain players I look at and I'm like, I I can't, you can give me 20 more years. I'm not going to be able to do that. And I'm sure there's some golfers who look at me and think that. So there's always someone better, but yeah, I think that's what's beautiful about this game is that there are scoring skills. Like when you were talking about before how you were playing against someone with similar physical skills to you, but you were beating them by 10 or 15 strokes because you were outthinking them. You were making smarter choices. Like that's the beautiful part of golf. And that's why I got into doing what I was doing and the type of coaching I like to give is because that's like scoring, right? All the decisions you make, your mental state, like you can become so much more efficient that way and lower your scores in addition to, you know, increasing your ball striking ability. But yeah, I think there's there's definitely a nature element to it also, like our genetics and our, our physical abilities do play a role, but you can override them 
to a certain point in this game, you can get really good results and be happy with your game as well. You're not going to make it to the PGA Tour though. What are your aspirations for that? I bet if I started out with aspirations of being a tour player and like got all the knowledge I had and gave it to me as a 10-year-old, I don't I still probably wouldn't have made it. I just don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I ever would have been good enough. I just I don't think I have the physical skills or the mental skills. I don't think I was born with them. Oh well. Where it gets murky, there's a point where we can't control anymore. We're basically at the mercy of our motor system. And we've all had that experience, even at my level, where you're you're playing well, you're piping them down the middle, and then all of a sudden you step up to one drive and you flare it 40, 50 yards right. And you think, well, wait there, that felt like the that felt like the same swing to me. Well, what's the difference? Your motor system, for whatever reason, just decided to change something and produce a, a club face that was three degrees more open. It's a minuscule change, but it's enough to hit that bad shot. We can't control that. And the problem is if you try to fix that one, that outlier that went 40, 50 yards right, well, you're affecting all the ones that you pipe down the fairway as well. So there's a point where you just have to say, well, that happened, that bad shot happened. I just have to continue with the same thing and hope that it doesn't happen again. And you, you can't control that and it's horrible to say most people are going to hate to hear that but some people are going to have more of those in them and some people are going to have fewer now we can certainly train and with the right training and with enough training and if we start early enough and we have the right genetics you are going to be a player that does those bad shots less often but they're still within everybody they're still within the best players in the world they just hit fewer of them but they're still there and we can't control when they come in and out. We can put things in place to try and mitigate them. We can put things in place to try and reduce them, but we ultimately can't decide. Our motor system decides that for us. Yeah, that can drive you truly insane. Yeah. Don't research free will. No. <laughs> <laughs> the science of free will. Don't research it. It will drive you insane. I think we got time for one more here. What are all the different yardages you need to know to play decent golf? For example, full carry for each club, three-quarter half pitch shots for wedges, yardages for long chip shots, for fades, draws, punch shots. I this is going to shock people. I'm going to go on the, the simpler side. Like, yeah, I think you should you should have a good benchmark for your carry distances. I can't stress carry enough for all the clubs in your bag for full swings. So I know for me, seven iron, my stock yardage is, you know, if I swing like close to 100%, I do hit my irons farther than most because I de-loft and have lower spin. So I'm not some crazy swing speed person, but a normal seven iron for me is like 177, 180. Like that's if I hit a good one, eight iron, 165. Like I just know these numbers and then you can adjust on the course. I like to think in those terms of like the full swing and then you know, we, we talked about, we had a distance control episode recently and, and I gave some thoughts on how I don't like people to mess around with full swing distances that much. I think it's more trouble than it's worth. Absolutely being able to benchmark all of your full swing carry distances throughout your bag. And how can you do that? Launch monitors for sure. If you have access to a good one, you can start seeing it, tracking your shots on the course. Uh, I think there's some caveats to that, but having both of those numbers so that you have confidence that your seven iron flies 155 on a decent swing. So that's for sure very good information. Beyond that, I know inside of 100 yards, distance control, we've talked about 
I think you and I both like the clock system. You know, if I have to hit a 50, 60, 70, 80 yard shot, I don't use multiple clubs. I don't do that part of the clock system. I just use my 60 degree and I just have, oh, that's my 50. That's my 60. That's my 70 yard swing. So definitely feel. And then when, when I get inside of 50 and I've been open that I'm not, that's where I, my skills start to decline a little bit. I'm still good. I'm not horrible. I, I don't really think as much. Once I start getting down to like inside 30 yards, it's more visual than it is, oh, stock, pull that yardage up. I know what 25 yards looks like, but I'm not shooting it with like a laser or something. So yeah, I would say full swing stock yardages. I would put most of your effort to figuring those out and that will help you with your strategic decisions. And then having some type of distance control system for those partial wedge swings. Punch shots, fades, draws, no, I don't have, I mean, we just said we don't like shaping it both ways. So yeah, I don't, I don't have like a, my fade seven iron number, my draw seven iron, like doesn't exist for me. I, I try and keep it as simple as possible. So that those are my thoughts there. Yeah. I'm similar to you. Once I'm inside 50 yards, it's more using visuals. If you call that feel, just visuals from 50 yards up to the rest of them, I have 10-yard increments definitely for clubs. So I know what my 50-yard swing is, my 60, 70, 80, 90, blah, 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 up until full wedges. On the full swings, again, there's like a 10-yard increment between clubs. I can adjust that slightly. We talked about that in the distance control episode. I might, if I need a little bit of extra yardage, I might close the face down a little bit and aim a tiny bit more right. These are not huge changes. I'm just hitting more of a pull draw onto the target to get a little bit more out of it. Or if I need a softer landing shot that goes a little shorter, I might open the face a touch. But again, small, small changes. And I wouldn't recommend that to most players. They just, you know, they're there. I know we got a lot of scratch players plus figure handicap listening to us. So there are options there for them. But those are my thoughts on that. All right. Should we close up the mailbag here? Yeah. It was good. It was quite fun doing this. I thought it was okay. Yeah. I think we'll, hopefully we'll do feedback's important. So if you like this, reach out to us. Let us know what you thought about the episode. If you have more questions, keep sending them in. It's hard for us to answer all of them. Sometimes I get a lot of questions in general. Sometimes they're like, I just don't don't know how to answer that. Like golfers have some very complicated, difficult questions sometimes. And a lot of the answer, to be honest, is like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I try and be humble and and you can't know everything or uh, that's just not my expertise. So we we try and handle what's in both of our wheelhouses, but we we definitely can't answer everything. And that's why we have guests on to share their expertise. So yeah, thanks for everyone for their questions. Adam, where can everyone find you and your your answers to these questions? You have multiple products for these. They can go to adamyounggolf.com. They can get that free ebook that I've got floating around at the moment or read all my blogs. Or if you go to the game improvement area in the menu, there's a list of my products there. So I've got things like the strike plan to help you with striking, the accuracy plan to help you with left and right. And I've got next level golf, which is like a, a library of over 150 hours of content, I think now. It's crazy. So John, where can people find you? Check out my book and now my video course, Four Foundations of Golf. You can go to fourfoundationsofgolf.com. I am relaunching Practical Golf soon, folks. There will be a big announcement on that soon. And I've relaunched my weekly newsletter. I'll put the link in the show notes to sign up for that. You can sign up for Adam's newsletter as well there and his, his hacks 
your, your nice hacks that you give out to people, not your, not bad hacks, good hacks. So thank you everyone for listening and we will see you soon with a new episode.